Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life. Hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesqual, and Harry McDonough. Today's episode is sponsored by Hyperskill. Hyperskill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose. You can find out more about them on hyperskill.org. Today we are joined by Elon Buckman, one of the godfathers of AI. Elon, uh, um, thank you so much for, for, for being here and being one of our guests uh, in the podcast. Uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience, please. Sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, I've had about a 30-year career. I uh, co-founded and sold a software company to Thomson Reuters. I uh, was a hedge fund portfolio manager. I uh, built a practice selling AI to asset managers, consulting practice. Um, I spent uh, three, four years in big tech at uh, Microsoft and Google. I um, was most recently head of AI at a company called uh, FactSet um, and uh, just recently left uh, about a month, month and a half ago to um, explore um, a startup project. I have so many questions lined up. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, so uh, one of the things we normally like to ask in the podcast, it's about your own journey as an entrepreneur. So how hard was it? Because you sold the company a couple of years ago. So how hard was it to get started, get funding? Did you get, get any funding? So do you want to tell us a bit more about that journey? Because you've, you you are a very successful entrepreneur, right? Uh, n- not everyone can actually go through an exit and an exit to Thompson, Thompson uh, Reuter, right? So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Thank you, Ricardo. You know, uh, every every journey, entrepreneurial journey that I have, is completely different. I haven't cracked the code yet, um, but I can tell you about my first one, and it was um, you know, it was pretty amazing. I was I was a couple of years out of college, and um, I got together with um, a few uh, a few contacts through uh, family connection, and they were just getting started. And so it was basically it was me and you know maybe one or two other co-founders, and uh, we were. Uh, you know, we were just in an empty office and we were trying to figure out what to do. Um, and we, you know, we started out um, a bootstrapping and the, the bootstrapping recipe that I'm familiar with is to do consulting. So back then, you know, my background was in web design. Uh, I had worked for um, for this uh, early web design leader called agency.com. They did the first website for American Express and for Hitachi and for a few other major brands. And my partner came from Microsoft. He was pretty senior in the consulting organization there. And our idea was that we would make something that uh, merges the, the beauty of web design and the software depth of you know, the Microsoft way of building software. This was back in like 1994, 95. And um, we would try to kind of build websites that are not just skin deep, but actually functional and um that worked out pretty well um the you know we got the first few clients through just outreach to our networks and then we actually connected we partnered with um the microsoft consulting organization which you know just sort of by way of of background back then and still now uh, consulting is a very small part of microsoft's business they don't really especially like to do consulting it's less profitable than building software. And so back then, uh, Microsoft, demand for Microsoft was 
was booming. This was, you know, uh, like just after, you know, Windows 95 was released and all this other stuff. And the consulting organization in New York was just getting hammered. There was just way, way too many requests. And so we were like the Statue of Liberty. You know, there's a plaque in the Statue of Liberty that says, give me your poor and wretched masses. Uh, so we said, give, give me all your clients that don't pay the bills. They have unreasonable expectations. They are pain to work with. There's scope creep. All the ones that you know you don't like working with, and you will never hear from them again. That was our that was our pitch. <laughs> and and it worked. You know, we, we got we got a couple of uh, referrals from Microsoft Consulting, and you know we took care of them, and uh, uh, that that became kind of the early the early start to our business. And then uh, over time. You know, it turned out that a couple of our clients requested substantially the same thing. And that thing was um, anyway. So it was it was my role to um, I basically uh, I noticed it. I wrote a memo about it and I said, you know what, we can keep doing consulting, but it would be even better if we had a product because that would be a nice compliment to our business and um, it'd be really cool to build it and it'd be profitable. And so um, I. I guess uh, became the product person, and I took that product from the memo to where it became something like seventy percent of the revenue of the company, wow. and the reason why we got acquired. And um, that product would, you know, it would now be called um, social networking, but back then there was no such thing. That label didn't exist, so we called it bulletin boards or community. And there's also no software as a service. We shipped it as um, as a CD. So it'd be I like, remember those. I remember like CD-ROMs. Right. That's right. So you, you pop the CD on your server, uh-huh. and you get all these all these features. And um, it was a lot cheaper than having to sort of build those things uh, yourself. But like the moment that we hit real sort of product market fit, it was kind of interesting because um, you know we were. Um, it's not that we were limping along, but we were we were chugging along. There wasn't any, wasn't anything special, and then you know. The dot com wave hit. All these companies raise money, and you raise money. The VC tells you there's a checklist of things you have to do, and usually, number two or three item on that checklist is build a community around your website or around whatever whatever you do. You need a community around. It. And so back then there was just no software to do that. Um, and our pitch to all of these entrepreneurs was, we'll help you take number three off your checklist. And you'll spend, say, a quarter of a million dollars instead of one million dollars, and you'll spend like 30 days instead of six months to build it, and it's going to work better than whatever you're going to build in six months. It's so uh, it was super expensive, right? So it's actually buying all these. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was enterprise grade software, um, and it, it it was built to scale. So some of our clients, you know, we our software powered. You know, there was uh, when when CNBC launched their website, their first website, and they had discussions about stocks that was using our software. When um, uh, so it was maybe 20,000 discussion boards about each security. Uh, when Healthy on WebMD launched and they had discussions with, you know, with doctors online that was using our software. So we, we tried to we tried to build software that was really high quality that would scale quite a bit, would be fast. So I mean, that's, that's an incredible story because People can, I think people can only aspire to have been there when it was kind of exploding, right? So just before the dot com and then catching all the dot com 
and then the massive explosion that happened and then everyone would kind of I wouldn't say started having a personal computer, but they did start having access to the internet and started using the internet quite a lot, right, in the beginning of 2000. So it's really the, the time to be alive, I guess. Um, and how, right now, I know you're quite active in the AI. How did you transition from, from, you know, having your own company, then selling the company, and then how do you progress towards AI? Because it's not new for you. You have been in space for much, much longer than anyone else talking about it. So how did it happen? Um... I got my start working on AI about 20, 20 years ago or so. Um, and I was working for this consulting company that was in two lines of business. One of them was management consulting, strategy consulting. They recruited me right out of business school for that line of business. And the other line of business was what they called data mining. And um, it turned out that they were, you know, we were okay at strategy consulting. We would compete with, I don't know, McKinsey, Bain, et cetera. We were a little bit cheaper. Um, but the work that this company was doing in data mining was five, 10 years ahead of its time. And so I was hired for business number one, and I switched to business number two as soon as I could because I was just shocked and, and amazed at what they were doing. And back then, there was no, like, there were no, language models, it was, it was, it was all, you know, it was, the work was done in SAS and it was, um, you know, everything was really slow. I started building um, marketing and risk models for one, one of our biggest clients was American Express. So American Express, um, it's not that they didn't use any math. Mm-hmm. It's that before we came on the scene, they would use, let's say, to make a decision about whether to give you a line of credit or not, they would use a really simple model like linear regression or logistic regression or something like that. And um, we came in in the um, early aughts, early 2000s, and we basically, you know, brought forward like so linear regression was invented. I don't know in 18 whatever 1870s, 1860s was used by some statisticians. Maybe even older than that, logistic regression is from the 1960s. And American Express in like in the year 2000, they were using like 40 to 140 year old technology. And we came in and we proposed new modeling techniques that had been invented in like 1998. And so it was it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was just, you know, it was, it was bringing a tank to a knife fight. It was, it was completely unfair. The new the new techniques worked way better uh, than linear regression. And so so they were able to get much more, much better statistical results for all sorts of decisions, like who should get credit, how much credit should they get, who do you target the the marketing proposal to, um, who should get to the front of the queue when they call for help, all sorts of decisions, resource allocation decisions. And um, it was an eye-opener for me. Like I was just, um, I mean, I was talking to customers, I was during the day and I was uh, learning the math at night and I was, um, it was I was having a lot of fun, and then it turned out that um, the business of strategy consulting, at least my perspective of it, shifted, and the perspective of my clients shifted from like sort of the traditional management consulting is top down. You you know your client asks you the big question, what should our strategy be over the next five years, and you start by researching the world, researching the market, researching this client. And you identify a couple of 
themes or a couple of really like big ideas. And then you drill down into like how to do them and you drill down into what do they mean for this business and for that business and for the third business. And then you translate that into a kind of a marching orders, like how do you execute it month by month, et cetera. So that is, to me, that is like classic top-down pyramid principle management consulting. And I found that the paradigm had shifted from that to sort of bottom-up strategy consulting. What is bottom-up strategy consulting? You don't start by asking like big questions out of Wikipedia or out of like secondary research. You start by interrogating the data. What is the data saying? And the data will, so you first you figure out, you collect the data if you don't have it, or you buy it, and you interrogate it. And then you, you know, the data gives you some hypotheses, you validate them. Once you have some hypotheses, then you do the rest of it, figure out, you know, how to use them. And I found that model of consulting to be so much more satisfying than doing sort of top-down research, because when I would get questioned on something, I'd have backup. There'd be some you know, I'm a numbers guy. There'll be some scientific basis for what for what I'm saying. Now, it's not always the right. It's not the only right answer. It's not the only way to do it. But it's a way that really worked for me, and it worked for more and more of my clients. And so, um, I learned that way of thinking um, at this company. And then, you know, after the company that the company grew, got acquired, uh, I left and I started doing some of my own consulting. And this was the way that served me. Uh, but you know, Ricardo, I uh, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I have never seen like what, what's what's been happening in AI over the last year has just been completely different from the last the 19 years that preceded that. I was just about to ask you about that because it feels that people, you know, everyone's talking about AI now and rightfully so, but they, they don't actually realize there has been a lot of growth up until this stage, right? Now it's just the point; it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's actually quite a big chunk of ice underneath the, you know, the, the waves. So I was just about to ask you, what do you think is happening now? How, how do you see this? How impactful do you think the current uh, evolution of AI is for, for everything that we do? You know, I, I can tell you that the feeling that I get from, from being in this moment, I, I feel really fortunate. And it's very similar to the feeling that I remember having in like 1995 working in an internet company. I mean, it's it's really exciting, and at the same time, it feels so so early. It feels like there's you know we're all we're we're trying to build these things. We're excited about these new capabilities, but there's so much left to do. Like there's just this wide wide open space, and we're just at the at the tip tip of the iceberg. It's like if you know, it's not even the first inning. It's like the first the first five minutes of the game. That's that's what it feels like to me. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of like what actually happened, I mean, I don't have an especially contrarian view. I think, you know, the fact that uh, ChatGPT is the fastest growing uh, product in history mm-hmm. um, and suddenly unlocked all of these capabilities and showed that you could just you could just throw some more data and compute at this problem, get get a, a magic moment. And now um, that toothpaste is out of the tube and lots of other people are able to you know, replicate parts of it. Um, it's very, very exciting. It feels like, um, to me, it feels at least as impactful as the creation of the internet, mm-hmm. um, and maybe at least as impactful as, you know, maybe even bigger than that. Maybe it's electricity. Maybe it's fire. 
uh, but I'm, I'm quite, quite optimistic about it. I think it's it's going to be a new revolution, right? The same way we had all these revolutions throughout history. Uh, I think this we're at that stage where you know everything's going to change, and rightfully so, and for for the best. Um, I was listening to um, uh, I was listening to 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 a famous podcaster the other day, and he was saying it's the same change we watch when people um, transition from having horses everywhere to having automobiles and that happened you know overnight right it was night and day and i think that's probably what's going to happen with this type of ai um should we be concerned because there's a lot you know if you if you read i don't know those type of weird newspapers say oh my god ai is coming to take your job and this but to be honest i think we're at that stage where it's actually quite quite good but should we be concerned what do you think yeah it's a really good question i actually guessed that a lot ricardo so i think that there are there are two future scenarios that could cause concern. And I think that they're actually very, very different from each other. And one really is worrisome and one isn't. So uh, the first one is AI is going to take my job. That is a very concerning future scenario. The second one is AI is going to take my freedom. Yeah, that's that's Um, (laughs) So I actually think that the first scenario where AI is going to take my job that is, it looks really concerning. It sounds really scary, but I actually think that that is the utopian scenario. Um, there are a lot of jobs that I wish AI would take. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people that are doing jobs that are just going to be better done by a computer, and they're not, they're not going to be jobs for humans anymore. Like they're, those humans are going to be much happier not doing those jobs. I think also that. Uh, when people are looking at that first scenario of AI is going to take my job, they stop looking, they stop visualizing it at the moment that the job is lost, but they, I don't think they fully appreciate all of the knock-on effects. So if AI takes all of these jobs, that means that it's going to be able to do these jobs better and cheaper. That means that the things that these jobs produce are going to become so much better and cheaper. So, you know, imagine that you need a proofreader or you need a lawyer, you need an editor for this podcast or a, you know, a booker to help you find guests. Um, so you could do a little bit better than me next time. Uh, so, right. So I, I doubt we were going to do any, any better than you. And I think we've reached the pinnacle of, of the, the highest quality guests ever. But, <laughs> thank yes. you. Thank you, Ricardo. But you can imagine how, you know, as an entrepreneur, you consume all of these services. Maybe you do them themselves yourself. Maybe as you grow, you, you'll decide to outsource them. So today your option is basically outsource it to a human and yeah. hopefully they're good at what they do. And imagine that in that future, and maybe this future is not so far away, you can actually outsource it to a machine. The machine does a really good job of booking guests for you. That means that there's going to be um, the quality of your podcast goes up. The cost of producing it goes down. You get to keep more money from uh, all the other sources of revenue that you have, the reason why you do this podcast, whether it's you know, advertising or you know your other businesses, and so um, all the services that you consume get cheaper, you will feel richer. You will be richer, um, and it's not just you. It's like everybody that's consuming all of these white collar services, you know, professional services, uh, architects and lawyers and designers and programmers, and all these things become cheap. So. To me, if you zoom out uh, on that society, it means that all the things that we need 
uh, become really cheap. So we will feel very rich. Like just imagine you're you're now a billionaire, and you know all these things that you want to buy they, they don't mean anything. The prices don't mean anything to you. You can afford as much as you want. And so I think that that that's a world where there's huge deflation. The prices of lots of goods and services drop because the AI is doing them more efficiently. If there's so much deflation, that means you know basically we are we all feel richer, even if we don't make the numbers might not be higher. It's not like my income went up, but my expenses went down, and so I feel richer and I am richer. And I think in that world, um, just fewer people need to work. So um, in that world, I think that you know those people who lost their jobs, um, maybe they'll find other jobs, you know, developing, you know, something, something that's higher value. Uh, some of them will become, you know, uh, maybe engineer, you know, instead of being a lawyer, you might be an engineer training law chatbots or something like that. But it, it's not necessarily like not everybody's going to switch. Some people will, will become artists because whatever you know, basically whatever change they have left in their pocket is enough to live on. And um, as a society, I also think that we'll be able to afford to support these people because we will have so much because all these things become cheaper. So I think that world is a world where, you know, there's going to be something like universal basic income and we'll just be able to take care of all these people. It's That's not going to be a problem. Right there. That, that is one of those that you never know how it's going to go, right? Um, yeah. But, but I was just thinking about something that you, you know, people being scared about all this transformation and, and how it's going to impact. I think people fail to realize that they can actually upskill themselves by using AI. Because, yeah. for example, think about tutoring and you're in school, you're trying to learn something. The teachers are not, you know, that good. Nowadays, you can probably go on YouTube, can probably go on Google and find the right information. But it never really does explain it to the level of detail you need to. However, on ChatGPT, it will tell you exactly what you need to do, how you need to do it. So... It, it just opens up possibilities, right? It's a bit like having access to books in, in the 15th century with the printing press. It'll be the same thing, the same change, right? So it's, it's, I it's really like that, Ricardo. I, I would say it's like going from a world where you have access to books mm -hmm. to a world where you have access to a tutor, like a really good tutor that knows you. The tutor knows what you like and what you don't like, you know, whether you like, uh, maybe you like learning by reading or by listening or, or by watching things. And it knows what you're strong at and what you're weak at. And it basically helps you. It's a, it's a personalized tutor. Uh, so that personalized tutor is, you know, it's very expensive in the pre AI world. Only a few people can afford one, but in the post AI world, you know, everybody could, uh, you know, learn that way. And, uh, yeah, it can be very effective. Now we were talking about some of the dangers of AI, which is also a very hot topic. So what do you think will be like in terms of you know, governments using it and you know, every being, everyone being repressed and we have killer robots walking down the street, which by the way, is, you know, um, it, it completely, people are, are, are absolutely crazy when they say that. But what do you think those are some of the things we should be concerned about? Because there is quite a lot of capabilities and I know some of it, but I'm pretty sure you know a lot more about it than I do. Should we be concerned about it or not at all? Uh, you know, Ricardo, I, I may be one of those crazy people. I am pretty concerned about it, actually. Um, so when we talked about the two scenarios before, where first scenario is AI takes my job, and the other scenario is AI takes my freedom, I'm really, really worried about that scenario. There's a couple of different ways that AI can be used to take our freedom. And um, 
you know, the simplest way to think about it is the like the Terminator scenario. So we yeah. all we we've all seen the movies. You know, approximately, you know, approximately every future science fiction story about AI is a disaster story, and it's it's really scary. And working with this technology, I cannot tell you that it's like there's no way for it to happen. Like I cannot I can't push that probability down to zero, and it's it's very very scary. Um, now. It's not like, uh, you know, I'm not losing sleep over it, uh, but I think that there's, you know, there's a real chance that um, uh, it's called takeoff, where, where the capabilities of AI, you know, they, they kind of grow and grow and grow, and then they suddenly take off at a rate that is just uh, too fast for the scientists to contain. I think that is, it's a real risk. I'm worried about it. Um, and also, you know, even if you ignore takeoff, even if takeoff is too science fiction to think about. AI is the kind of technology where which is, it's really it's really asymmetrical. Um, it's not like nuclear power, for example. So, you know, if you're worried about nuclear proliferation, um, to create uh, to create a nuclear bomb requires the resources of a nation state. It's incredibly difficult. You need to set up this enrichment program. You need really high-grade scientists and equipment and, and all these, you have to buy these things that are not available for sale. And so it's, you know, it takes so much money and so much time that only a few countries in the world have been able to do it. And those countries have been able to contain this technology to some extent. It's not perfect either. AI is not like that. AI, it's, you know, as an individual, you can have a breakthrough. Like today, we're not too late. We're early enough in the process where an individual can publish a paper and invent something that nobody's ever thought of. And that thing significantly increases the capabilities of the state of the art of what you can do with AI. I can give you lots of examples of papers like that. But from a risk perspective, you know, just imagine, imagine that a single scientist could invent something that makes, I don't know, that makes nuclear bombs more destructive uh, or more attainable. Uh, that would be scary, right? Yeah. So, um, so with AI, it's it's not just that an individual can can create a breakthrough to improve to increase the power. It's also that training these large models um, and all of the infrastructure around AI is getting cheaper at a very very fast rate. So, um, uh, yeah. So 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 it's really asymmetrical. By the way, I should mention these ideas are not mine. <laughs> Uh, I, I read a, a book that I'd like to recommend to you and your, and your Please viewers. Uh, the book is called The Coming Wave. It's written by Mustafa Suleiman, who is one of the co-founders of um, DeepMind, uh, okay. Google DeepMind. And it's mostly a book about what can go wrong. And the last 10% of the book are about what we can do about it. Um, so, people <laughs> Yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. So, so it's a it's a really it's a really interesting book. Um, in the last chapter of that book, he talks about a framework for um, for defending against these these problems. And it's um, you know I'm not going to do it justice, but it's it's these concentric circles. It's the way the way that you design any kind of security system is not a single barrier or a single line of defense, but many. So that you know if you breach the the external line of defense, you have the internal one, you have the internal one. It's like a, it's like a bullseye. 
Yeah. And so, um, and again, I don't remember all of them, but you know, one one of them starts you know very very close to the researchers and basically says that um, every model should have a built-in auditing system that describes what the model does and is available to not just the team researching it, but to other people that want to inspect that model. So it's kind of like, um, you know, you should be able to have like a little diagnostic, like you have a diagnostic port on your car, you know, you can plug in a USB or something. The car will tell you. Yeah, all cars have it since then. All cars, right. That's right. So the car will tell you kind of how it's feeling, you know, if some things are rusty, some things are according to spec or not. So what he suggests is there should be, and it's a standard port, like the same, the same USB thing will work on any car and can read data in the same cars are standardized on this. So he said he's suggesting that should be a diagnostic port on AI models, whether that model is built, you know, by OpenAI or Anthropic or by uh, WeChat, um, there should be a standard way to inspect them. Uh, another, you know, another, um, you know, wider sort of circle that he talks about is that um, all AI labs should should run and publish their test results in a way that that in a public place so that individual researchers can inspect those results and spot any kind of problem. Um, so there'll be like some kind of protocol, they publish it, and you and I can go check that ream of data and see if we, you know, and, and that's transparency. So he basically has like, you know, six or seven or eight of these concentric circles and they go all the way from the individual team up to uh, something that requires the society to, to make an investment. Uh, but um, I, I hope I hope some of these things come true. I hope that uh, these mechanisms get adopted. How do you prevent nation states, well, nation? How do you prevent certain certain countries from from developing capabilities like this? Is there a way of controlling it or not at all? Because right now, as you actually said, you're talking about uh, nuclear uh, no, no, nuclear technology, and we know there are certain constraints about getting uranium, getting plutonium, then enriching them. And we can track that via satellite, saying, okay, you have this, you came from that source, so forth, so on. How do we stop countries like, I'm going to give North Korea, I hope I never go to North Korea, because then I won't be allowed in, I'll probably get stuck there. But how do we prevent, you know, countries like North Korea from, from, from you know, from creating capabilities that would, um, you know, scare us all? So how do we stop that? Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a serious question, Ricardo. Uh, I, I don't have an answer. I think that you know the only way to compel, you know, nation states to do something is through some kind of an international treaty and political pressure. And you know, there's 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 no there's no magic bullet here. Some of these things require very very broad agreement and broad coalitions yeah. to to make something happen. Uh, but not all of it. So uh, you know, there's there's some things that we can you know, we could just start doing the right thing locally. And there are some things that just will require a massive agreement and will probably take a while. In that sense, you know, I think that this problem is not unlike, um, it's not unlike the environmentalist movement. You know, we, we have to take care of our planet. And, you know, how do we force the worst polluter to stop polluting? Well, it's going to be really hard to force it's the worst hard, polluter. Yeah. But... It doesn't mean that we should just like throw up our hands and say, well, if China is going to keep polluting in, you know, such and such province, it means that uh, I don't have to worry about the environment at all. So exactly. you, you kind of you take whatever steps you can. You start with your own bed, right? You make your bed 
keep your, you know, you, you lower your own carbon footprint, you think personally, and then you think about your circle of friends, your local community, and you kind of grow from there. But then the question would be, because we can always, the way we present ourselves and the way we organize ourselves, it is done in, in, in respect with our values, right? And rightfully so. However, when we are living in a global society, the other fellow might not have the same values and they might not respect the same thing. So it's a bit like going to war. Uh, when you do go to war, you, you need to be aware that your enemy might not have the same rules of engagement. They will not, you know, comply with the Geneva Connect, uh, Convention, for example. So they'll fight in a very dirty way. How do we stop it from happening? Right? It just it creates this dilemma. It's it's, it's going to be tricky, no? Yeah, it's definitely going to be tricky, Ricardo. I wish I wish I had a, a quick a quick answer for you. Uh, but I I think that the stakes of solving this with AI are very very high. Uh, because if we, you know, if we don't get it right in warfare, yeah. then the risk is that there's going to be a war that doesn't follow the rules, and it's really going to hurt the combatants in that war. Yeah. The risk, if we don't get it, you know, if we don't get it right in AI, the risk is that there is AI takeoff yeah. or an AI weapon, and it just wipes us out. I mean, I think it's it's an existential risk for the planet. It's it's not unlike global warming. Question on that. So there there is a I guess a gap right now between um, the the I guess the, the the online space and the actual physical capabilities of AI, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have the robots yet. How do you think all these bad nation states will be able to produce, for example, killer robots, or have that enough technology to actually disrupt this fully, or we're still very, very far away? Because if we look at that company, what's it called? Boston, uh, Boston Dynamics. Is it Boston Dynamics? Sure. They produce all those advanced robots. The robots. So when I think about, okay, let's incorporate AI here. It's actually it's quite powerful. But then I also know that other countries don't have it, so that makes me feel a little bit safer at night. Um, do you think that that transition will be easy or not? No, it definitely won't be easy. And also, I think we're, uh, I'm getting a little bit away from my expertise. So I, I uh, <laughs> m- most of the work that I've been doing has been for uh, commercial AI, you know, in the business world. And it's mostly been with text. Uh, so I haven't had a lot of personal experience with robots or weapons. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, uh, uh, autonomous weapons, uh, AI weapons that have the they can actually make uh, the decision to pull the trigger they exist they you know several nations have them including the US and it's a really it's a really scary thing um, uh, and there's there's this um, you know the arm the arms race is pushing a lot of the participants to be ever less careful and put ever more powerful weapons into the field that's the way it's always been but um, this is, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a very scary kind of race here, and I hope, uh, I hope that uh, we we pull back from brick. So on on that note about not arms race or anything like that, but about AI and technology, yeah. um, I know you're also a mentor for tech stars. Yeah. I was just asking, do you think that a startup can still exist without AI? on on something that they do, or that's completely off? You know, now you need um, AI. everything needs to be around AI. I, I, I heard a recent uh, um, statement from a venture capitalist. I think it was in Sequoia or maybe A16Z or one of those large funds. And they said that uh, over 90% of incoming pitches are AI related. 
So uh, I guess it's possible, but pretty pretty slim. Um, yeah. It's you know I think part of it is is kind of supply and demand. There's a lot of capital looking for AI ideas, and there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are trying to be where, where the capital is going. Yeah, that makes sense. But would you so because I you also teach people and they help them out. So what advice would you, would you give to an entrepreneur just launching their startup in terms of incorporating AI into their idea? Um, I think that AI is a tool. It helps you um, achieve certain things. It helps you maybe get where you're going, but it doesn't help you decide where you're going. It's not, it's not a destination. It's not, um, it's not a, it doesn't produce value by itself. It helps you produce the value that you want to produce. So it's a, it's a means to an end. Uh, it's, it's, um, it, it's technology. It's not a product, if that makes sense. So my advice to the entrepreneur, you know, if the entrepreneur tells me, you know, actually, you know, I, I recently had this, I had, um, you know, I had a, 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 a a startup founder and told me, look, I, you know, I built this AI based product and um, it's really cool. It has all of these technologies in it and I'm having like a lot of trouble selling it. You know, it's not really getting the, the kind of pickup, the tr market traction that, that I'm looking for. So, you know, what should I do? Should I maybe like um, raise some money, maybe lower my price, uh, maybe fix my ad. Maybe I should take on a partner. Like how do I, how do I fix it? And the problem with that question is that um, users don't really care if you're using AI or not. Maybe investors do, but users users don't care. Users have certain pain points, and as entrepreneurs, it's our job to fix those pain points using whatever means, whatever legal means we can come up with. Yeah. Um, and it just so happens that a lot of problems could probably be fixed with the application of these new capabilities that just got unlocked. Mm -hmm. But the user, again, the user doesn't care whether we're using a, a new way to fix it or an old way to fix it. They just care that it's fixed. So the advice of the entrepreneur is, you know, before you decide that you want to build something with AI, mm -hmm. talk to talk to users and make sure that you're fixing, make sure that you're building something that they would want. And then you figure out how to build it. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in terms of um, raising investment, because I know you're also in space, how hard it is? How, how hard do you think it is right now to raise investment overall? Because here, for example, in UK, a lot of people are complaining. Oh my God, it's been so hard, and no one's investing. You know, money's really tight. Uh, we know for a fact that in the US, you know, rounds are you know, at least five times bigger than in the UK, which is great. Uh, you know, our minimum you know round is a two hundred fifty k, and that's really a lot of money. Because in the US, it's around a million. So, how is that working? What's the current status? Okay, so there's two questions there. There's the US versus UK or US versus other countries, and there's also how hard is it now versus how hard was it before? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so for the second question, I think that valuations for private companies, for startups, have generally come down in the U.S. over the past, like, maybe six months, 12 months. And um, you can see that in a lot of, um, you know, a lot of investors that have sort of mark-to-market accounting, they have taken down uh, the marks of their private investments. 
And it's also, you know, it's more difficult to raise money now than it was maybe six or 12 months ago. Um, not necessarily a bad thing. There was just like such a mania going on. Um, but, um, but it's still, you know, there's still a lot of VC investments. There's still a lot of VCs that have dry powder and there's still a lot of capital looking for, for AI opportunities. Um, in terms of the U.S. versus other countries, you know, it's a really good question and I don't have a lot of expertise there, but there's, you know, there's something special about the, the Bay Area ecosystem and uh, what they've created, you know, what over the past, whatever, 30, 40, 50 years. And uh, I know that a lot of other countries have tried to replicate it and it's been elusive. Um, yeah. It's not that nobody else has succeeded, but the scale is, you know, it, it's tough to replicate. I, I can't tell you that I know exactly what it is, but, you know, something about the physical proximity of a couple of universities and all of these capital providers, um, it's like a magnet. It's like a self-reinforcing system, and it, se it seems to work. Uh, I also think that, you know, um, there's, there's something in... Uh, there's something about cultures that are they're just different, you know, yeah. uh, something about, you know, the value of the, you know, individual and versus the value of a group and value of society. And, you know, there's, there's the U.S. makes different choices than other countries do. And those choices have pluses and minuses. <laughs> so maybe the entrepreneurial ecosystem is a plus. But, hey, you know, we have, you know, one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world. And. To, to a lot of other, you know, people who live in a lot of other countries, it's crazy that, you know, you have to go shopping for dentists uh, and you have to, like, haggle with your with your uh, pharmacist about how much to pay for a medication. But that happens in the U.S. all the time and it's it doesn't happen in any other advanced economy. So there's definitely trade-offs. That's always a big shock. You know, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who travels to the U.S. For, you know, on a frequent basis. He also has family there. But we're talking about uh, azomorphosol, which is the medicine you take for it's a stomach protector. And he was saying, I had to get some a prescription there in the States. And it was like $700. Whereas in here, I, can go, I literally can go to my supermarket and buy it, and it'll be two pounds. So very, very cheap. Right. And That's it's, right. It's a bit of a shock. Um, another question I have is, would you advise someone coming in from Europe and say, you know what, just go to the U.S. and try and raise some funds there? Or do you think automatically they'll be shut down and say, oh, where are you coming from? Uh, the U.K., France, whatever, Germany. Uh, yeah, we don't tend to invest in European companies because it's a legal minefield or we don't trust you to do things the right way. You know, I don't think that switching countries is the right move for most entrepreneurs. I think that... Um, the biggest problems are around building something that people want. It's achieving product market fit. If you are able to achieve product market fit, the capital will come to you, even if it has to come overseas. So I think that um, over the past 20, 30 years, um, I think, you know, even if you look at U.S. capital, that there's just a lot more investment overseas and, you know, that they're looking for deals in much, much bigger places certainly, you know, broader than the Bay Area. Um, and I think that concentration is decreasing, it's diffusing. Um, I know I, I know that there's not as much capital available to entrepreneurs in um, more conservative countries. And, um, but I think that um, 
if you, you know, let's say if you're in, uh, you know, if you're in France, if you're in Germany, if you're if you're in the UK and you have developed a product that has good traction that users really want, uh, I think that you can raise the capital without moving. You, you may not be able to raise it from, you know, from local investors that are that are down the street, but I think yeah. that uh, I think that it, it is possible to do. If you had, and this is going to be a very tricky question, I, I realize that. If you had just one piece of advice to give to an entrepreneur, what would that be? Build something people want. <laughs> that's a good one. That's 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 super solid. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's because I think sometimes you meet a lot of people who are building this fantastic idea in their mind, and then they realize actually no one wants this. What am I going to do with this? And the same happens quite often with software companies where they build this product that they think the market's really going to need and that they didn't hear the market and the market said why did you spend a couple million here because that's not for us that's you know, no one's going to use it um as, as we're closing to the end of our podcast if people want to reach out to you how can they do so yeah so uh the best way to reach me is on linkedin uh it's alan bachman a-l-o-n-b-o-c-h-m-e-n um and uh, just drop me a note uh, i uh i respond to uh, everybody that uh, reaches out to me. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been super insightful. Thank you, Ricardo. Take care. Thanks. All right. Let me just.